This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, this week we have seen a new First Minister in the North. The Assembly is back up and running after two years when the DUP reached an agreement of sorts with the British government and history has been made. Michelle O'Neill is the First Minister and she is the First Nationalist, indeed the First Republican, to occupy that office. It is clearly a moment in history and to discover exactly how this can work, what it means. It's a pleasure to welcome to the stand Dermot Ferriter, who is one of our most distinguished academics. Dermot is Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD. He's written, I think, nine books or maybe more, but nobody knows more than Dermot about the history of this country. Dimit, you're very welcome to the programme. I want to ask you first about a piece you, you wrote, a very, very, very good piece in the Irish Times last Friday, in which you drew attention to the remarks made by Mary Lou MacDonald, which shocked me, I must say. She said that we were now within touching distance of Irish unity. She also said that the appointment of Michelle O'Neill consigned the previous era in the North to the pages of history books. And she talked about the historical turning of the wheel. And then she went on to say, as I said, that in historical terms, we are within touching distance of Irish unity. I thought that was extremely provocative and clearly you refer to it in your piece. First of all, on the question of Michelle O'Neill's appointment, because Sinn Féin were the largest party, is it right to say, and is it fair to believe, as I do, I think, that this is a poignant moment and a very meaningful moment for Northern nationalists, that she is now the First Minister in Stormont? Oh, there's no doubt about that. And if you consider the long, long road, and I'm talking about a 100-year road because this year marks the 100th anniversary of the first meeting of the Boundary Commission, um, which was catered for under the Anglo-Irish Treaty that was signed in late 1921. And it held out the prospect for nationalists that the border would be reviewed, that partition would come under the microscope, and they were led to believe that ultimately those nationalists in the North who, who didn't want to be in that new Northern Ireland, um, that their uh, there was a way out for them, 
Uh, and of course, their hopes were dashed, and there was a very strong feeling of abandonment uh, at that time, not just in relation to being abandoned by uh, London, but also by Dublin. Um, and in many ways, partition became further and further, uh, more and more entrenched and cemented. Um, and of course, they were living in a state as a one-third minority, in a state that was designed for Protestant supremacy and unionist uh, dominance, two-thirds uh, of, of the new Northern Ireland 100 years ago were uh, Protestant and largely unionist. Um, and in many respects, Catholics and nationalists were treated as second-class citizens. And there's a whole host of areas where that yes. was relevant in relation to how the law was administered, in relation to housing and employment and so on. Um, and gerrymandering I, of the voting. And gerrymandering. I don't need to labour that point. But no. to have arrived at a point where there is now... Um, a Republican First Minister is obviously an indication of the scale uh, of the change, and it is historic. It's about demographic change, it's about political change, it's about the loss of, of unionist supremacy, which has been building for some time now. There's a, perhaps an irony, too, um, in some of the claims that are being made about Sinn Féin's triumph, given that they now hold the First Minister position in a state that they don't really want to exist, yes. uh, you know, given that their core political object uh, is Irish unity. But they would present this, of course, as being very much a another staging post on the, on the road to unity. But we also have to try uh, and unpack that uh, for what it is, because I found it very interesting that for all of the comments being made by Mary Lou MacDonald in advance of the appointment of the ratification of Michelle O'Neill as First Minister. Michelle O'Neill herself, when she accepted the post of First Minister and made her first speech in that role, did not refer to unity. Yes. And there are two things going on here. Sinn Féin senior politicians do not make off-the-cuff remarks, generally speaking, in relation to unity. Uh, and there clearly is a strategy here of those outside of the new power-sharing uh, dispensation, uh, making comments in relation to unity, while those inside it are being more cautious, because obviously there's a lot of pressure on them to show that they can work with their unionist counterparts. Um, but yes, of course, those remarks by Mary Lou MacDonald were designed to be deliberately provocative. They're also in keeping, Eamon, with comments that Mary Lou MacDonald has made over the last couple of years. You may recall that one of her mantras became particularly from 2018, um, in, in, during the fallout from Brexit, really, that Irish unity um, was being spoken about in every town and village in the country. Yes. And she wrote to EU diplomats in 2022, uh, reiterating that idea that this is now being spoken about everywhere in Ireland, not just in aspirational terms, but as something that is within uh, reaching distance. Now, that might be news uh, to a lot of people, uh, including, I think, to a lot of Sinn Féin supporters who don't necessarily see unity as their most pressing concern. It is the core political uh, object of Sinn Féin, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is the core priority uh, of, of those who are expressing support for Sinn Féin or are intending to vote for Sinn Féin. Yeah, we, we have some idea, don't we, Dermot, about the yen for unity in this state. Mm. And it's two-thirds of the people say yes, but I don't think terribly convincingly it's an aspiration out there somewhere. Well, it is, and it's an emotional thing for people as well. We shouldn't underestimate that, you know? Yeah, I mean, 33% of people don't want it. Yeah, 
yeah. But what, I mean, that two thirds who in the Republic would, would state their preference for unity. That's been very consistent over decades, over nearly 50 years. Um, in the late 1970s, uh, you know, when McGill magazine was in its early days, it did a very extensive uh, polling uh, on attitudes to unity, and you got the two-thirds figure there as well. Yes. Um, and one quip at the time uh, was around the idea of, of make me pure Lord, but not quite yet. Yes. Because when you begin to drill down uh, into the, uh, the other aspects of that desire or the practical realities of that desire in relation to what people will be prepared to countenance in terms of change, uh, in terms of the economy, in terms of taxes and so on, uh, you, you might well get a different answer. So uh, that's not me being cynical. It's about understanding that people will express a desire to write what they consider uh, to be a considerable wrong, you know, the, yes. the division of such a small country. And, you know, I'm trying to take the politics out of it to a certain extent here, you can never fully. But the idea of, of the partition and the division of sm such a small island was in many ways a tragedy, that there couldn't be a solution that involved people being able to uh, to live on the island without that border. Um, but at the same time, it's also about trying to get beyond what might be an emotional aspiration and beyond the idea that this is about the traditional idea of unity, reclaiming the fourth green field. Yeah. Um, we have to be very careful around language. Uh, and there are those in politics who are careful uh, around language where they don't necessarily think that the traditional language around unity is appropriate in the 21st century. No. Uh, it's interesting. Do you remember James Nesbitt came to Dublin there yes. uh, to talk at the Ireland's Future Conference a couple of years ago? Um, and I mean, he was making the point that, look, if we're going to talk about this, the dialogue has to move out from the Dáil, you know, out from uh, Stormont, out from Whitehall. Um, it has to be, uh, to be about a civic dialogue. But the interesting thing he said, I thought, was that we need to talk uh, not so much about United Ireland as a union of Ireland. Yes. But there is a difference. Um, and of course, you have people like Michal Martin, who you've spoken to, who will talk about the yes. idea of a shared uh, island. Yes. Uh, and, you know, language is important. Um, in in relation to this question. Yeah, now you quote in your piece in the Irish Times, W.B. Yeats in the Shannad, in 1924, and what he said, or what he suggested, as an alternative path to unity, other than what was, you know, being argued for by Republicans. And you quote him as saying, it would be one in the end, not because we fight, but because we govern this country well. And there's some truth in that. But can you put Yeats's comments and his position in the context of where we are today? Well, what was interesting about that, uh, I mean, you know, Yeats at that stage, uh, much decorated as, as a public man of letters. Uh, but he did have this position in the Senate where he made quite strategic interventions in relation to what he considered to be crucial questions of identity. Um, and he was interested, obviously, in, in, in the idea of, of different identities and different cultural identities. Um, and the point he was making was that a lot of the rhetoric around the idea of unity or winning back what was lost uh, was going to be counterproductive. Yes. Uh, and he was uttering his words too in the context of what I mentioned earlier on, I mean, this debate about the Boundary Commission and what it might mean. Um, and it was, you know, it was contentious, uh, this whole Boundary Commission episode, because there was no way uh, of defining how you would ascertain the views of people who were living in the border areas. 
Um, I mean, let's remind ourselves, the idea of the Boundary Commission was that the border would be reviewed in accordance with the wishes of the inhabitants, insofar as may be compatible with economic and geographic considerations. It was one big web of ambiguity. Um, A lot of nationalists insisted that what that meant was plebiscites, that people would be asked to vote directly. Um, and that obviously people in Fermanagh or Tyrone <laughs> would vote uh, not to be in Northern Ireland. But there's no mention of plebiscites uh, in the articles that covered the Boundary Commission. Um, and even today, when we consider wording, there is, of course, mention in the Belfast Agreement, in the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, of the possibility of a border poll. Um, and again, the language around it is quite vague. You know, if a Secretary of State uh, for Northern Ireland, um, if it to that Secretary of State appears likely that a majority voting would express a wish uh, uh, for unity, uh, that a border poll would be facilitated. But, you know, there's no real adequate definition there of, you know, what constitutes appearing likely? You know, how do you measure that? Do you do it by election results uh, and so on? So the point being that, you know, and Yates was making this point that people are making trenchant assertions on the back of something that's actually very unclear. And what we have to do, uh, as he saw in 1924, was get on with the business of building a state that would be attractive uh, to those who were trenchantly opposed uh, to, to unity. Um, and, you know, I was resurrecting uh, that speech because it does still have a relevance. And I mean, this isn't about uh, having to pander uh, to unionists who have to answer for their own failings in terms of their own lack of vision or their own sometimes inability to adapt. I mean, if you consider um, the, the the idea of uh, a unionist ideology now and what it means in the 21st century, it's always been a reactive and a very defensive uh, ideology for obvious persons. You know, what we have, we hold, was was the mantra 100 years ago. There's 1.9 million people living north of the border, mm-hmm. roughly half and half nationalist and, of course, unionist, people who regard themselves as British. Yeah. And it's deep in their bones. I mean, this is where they have found themselves and their allegiance. I mean, if we leave out the extremists, shall we say, and there are some still left. But if you leave them out of it, there are still a lot of people whose British identity means so much to them. And I was wondering, and your piece struck a chord with me, and I put it to Michal Martin when I spoke to him last week about this idea of unity being within touching distance. Yeah. How does that make those people feel? Ought we not to be saying things like that? Particularly given the strength of Sinn Féin's support in opinion polls, should you not be making statements like that and effectively threatening, you know, a lot of people, around a million people? Well, they're the kind of comments that are are going to generate fear and entrenchment. Uh, And unions are going to double down. And for them, uh, it will be proof uh, of the idea that their identity is not be taken as seriously uh, as it should be. Uh, Mary Lou MacDonald is perfectly entitled, of course, to make uh, clear that her and her party's main political objective will remain unity. But the question is, when are these interventions uh, these type of interventions uh, helpful. Uh, what constituency is being played to here? Uh, what kind of message does it send out uh, in relation 
not just to you know Sinn Féin's project, but in relation to uh, how the resumption of power sharing uh, is going to go. Um, but it was also, of course, I think about uh, a reminder um, that you know Sinn Féin has come out on top. You know yes. <laughs> that uh, they weren't going to miss the moment. I suppose uh, to emphasise that they have a political project and they now have a very serious mandate, uh, and they do have a serious mandate. Uh, and that has to be acknowledged. But think about what, say, a, a unionist like Doug Beatty, yes. uh, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, would have said to Malachi O'Doherty, uh, the well-known journalist uh, who, who wrote a book, Can Ireland Be, be Won? And he said, Doug Beatty said, why should I design something for you when I don't want it? Now, if you, going back to the, the question you've asked, you know, it, if you want to get people from a unionist persuasion involved in dialogue, um, to persuade them that they actually do have to think about possible new dispensations. Well, then, suggesting that it's within touching distance or, or generating a, a degree of resentment or fear doesn't seem to me to be a very clever way uh, to go about it. But at the same time, you know, Doug Beatty's response, why should I design something for you that I don't want? Uh, there are answers to that as well, which is that unionists do have to face uh, the, the changed realities. You know, Brexit unsettled so much and raised all sorts of questions about their yes. plaintive cry about the integrity of the United Kingdom. You know, election results indicate, of course, uh, as do, do, do demographic uh, changes, that they are no longer um, in the position that they were. They do have to adapt. There's more fluidity uh, around identity. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there is an easier path uh, to unity. What Mary Lou MacDonald has been saying for quite some time now is that the unity train has left the station. Yes, um, and you know you either get on it, um, but you can't ignore it. Um, and again, that would seem to me to to be a wild exaggeration. Given the history of violence of the very recent past, that's a very provocative statement to make. Of course, there is violence yeah. laying dormant on both sides. Yeah. I mean, the IRA haven't really gone away in a sense. Well, there are fault lines there, uh, Eamon, which have not closed. And I mean, I was very conscious of this at the weekend, last time I was looking at the the resumption of power sharing. There's an awful lot of emphasis uh, in the speeches on reconciliation, on hearing each other. Uh, You know, there are still peace walls uh, across Northern Ireland. Uh, For all of the aspirations in the 1998 agreement uh, towards um, developing a shared society, there's not that much evidence of a shared society society, even more than 25 years on now. So it does seem to me there's a lot of uh, putting the cart before the horse uh, in relation to this uh, rhetoric uh, around unity. Um, There have been interesting interventions from people like Peter Robinson, Peter Robinson, the former leader of the DUP, who made quite a significant speech in 2018 in Queen's University in Belfast, where he said or suggested that unionists did need to start thinking about a possible process of negotiations, about a possible maybe timescale in relation to how this unity issue uh, might be faced, not with a view to accepting uh, the inevitability uh, that Republicans are talking about now, but with a view to being involved. And the way he described it was, you don't want your house to burn down, but you insure your house yes. in case it does burn down. And what he suggested was that, you know, a border poll, if there was to be a border poll, um, that a majority plus one would not suffice 
Yeah, but that's problematic, obviously, because if a border poll is to be conducted at some stage in the future, uh, it will be about a majority, even if that is just, you know, a majority of one. Um, but there are nationalists, too. I remember the late Seamus Mallon making that case very forcefully uh, for the SDLP um, that, you know, you know, a bare majority in favour of unity, um, you're running the danger of of repeating the mistakes that were made with the creation of the state of Northern Ireland in the first place. Um, but we do need to think about those who are open to persuasion. I remember listening to Alex Kane in the aftermath of Brexit. And Alex Kane, well-known commentator on unionist affairs, and he would have worked with unionists in the past, he estimated that between 15 to 20% of unionists were open to persuasion. Yes. Now, I don't know exactly how you measure that, and I don't know what the figure might be uh, today, uh, but he did also suggest that unionists were finding themselves in the constitutional equivalent of a granny flat, unloved by their landlord. Uh, there's a vulnerability there for all uh, their spiky and, and, and defiant rhetoric, um, and I think Jeffrey Donaldson has encapsulated a lot of, of, of those vulnerabilities and those tensions uh, and occasional uh, defiances. Uh, but there's a question for them about where they take their unionism. For yes. example, and Doug Beattie would have made this case, is the best way to secure the union to try and make a success of running Northern Ireland? Or is the best way to secure the union to take the debate about unity and to develop a debate about it within unionism and to develop a response and a coherent response to it uh, within unionism. Um, so, you know, there are questions, obviously, for, for unionists to face in terms of, of, of this debate. But I still think there's an awful lot of exaggeration uh, about the idea that this is somehow imminent. Yeah. And it's interesting, you talk about Sinn Féin support. There have been some interesting recent polls that suggest a certain faltering. It's not that Sinn Féin is not still in a very dominant uh, position in terms of the polls. It certainly is. But maybe not at the level it was last year or the year before. Now, there are probably a variety of different reasons for that, um, not just in relation to you know, this question of, of, of unity, but in relation to other questions uh, around immigration uh, and, and, and social issues um, and the question of where Sinn Féin needs to find its core political message that will resonate with as many people as possible. And the unity question is actually going to become tricky, I think, uh, for Sinn Féin, because they will want to continue beating that drum, but they may well find that it is not resonating in the way that they would like, yes. um, which will see them shifting back to other uh, themes, perhaps. Um, so I, I think, you know, in the next couple of years, we're going to see very strategic decisions being made. Mary Lou MacDonald already does an element of that. I mean, she would say things like, I suspect or I expect to see a border poll in the next 10 years. Um, that may well change. There was a lot of talk in recent times as well from Sinn Féin about the need for a citizens' assembly uh, to discuss uh, unity. Um, I haven't heard as much about that in recent times. So they do fly kites like all politicians. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Let me ask you about the possibility. First of all, on the Sinn Féin matter, they are a populist party. There is a housing crisis. We have crisis in the health service. We have massive problems that have nothing to do with unity and the North. And Sinn Féin, as a populist party, is benefiting from that. It's arguable, is it not, Dermot, that their popularity and their rise in the polls is really not to do with a yearning for a united Ireland. Mm. And the other question that intrigues me, and as a historian I'd be fascinated, I'm sure our listeners would be by your view, Europe and the possibility that within the European Union, even though the British have left, there may be a way in which national identity and the that very idea of the nation-state will be diminished and weakened and pure economic interests will come to the fore. And that is evident to some extent now, isn't it, in the relationship between North and South in terms of the economy? Yeah. I remember when Susan McKay uh, published her most recent book on Northern Protestants, uh, it was subtitled on Shifting Ground. And again, she was looking at a lot of the precarities and uncertainties that they were facing. Uh, but some of the people involved in commercial life in Northern Ireland who were from a unionist background said trade would find the path of least resistance. Yes. Um, and, I, you know, when it came to their um, political identity, um, economics might well trump that. Um, and there may well be um, 
you know, commercial developments and, and economic developments um, that will uh, shift the ground. Uh, in relation to how they might uh, view unity, that they might actually become uh, more pragmatic. Um, and, you know, we also saw that, I suppose, in, in, in relation to the aftermath of Brexit and, and those who might be pragmatic uh, about taking out citizenship, um, Irish citizenship, um, on the yes. grounds that it, for pragmatic reasons, they would much prefer to have an Irish passport uh, than a British passport. Um, so, you know... Uh, People can be pragmatic uh, in relation to that. Um, and Sinn Féin can also be pragmatic in relation to recognising that unity might not be the burning question, uh, you know, when it comes to their uh, political appeal. Um, so, you know, there's room for, for, for shifting all of that around. What I find interesting about the European dimension is that there has been this call from Sinn Féin for the European Union to be a sponsor of Irish unity to actually push for it. Um, now, that is not going to happen. No, and it would be incendiary. If you consider the, the era of the Troubles, the EU is never going to get involved um, no. in uh, negotiating some kind of solution or sponsoring some kind of approaches uh, towards a solution. What they did instead was that they funded the peace uh, and they did put a lot of money uh, into various projects, very, various EU projects associated with the peace. But they're not going to get involved in the debate uh, on Irish unity. What they have said, what the European Commission has said very clearly, is that uh, a unified Ireland, if that was to happen, uh, would be welcomed into the EU. Um, so, you know, they have taken that uh, position, but that's not the same as them advocating uh, for unity. But you're right about, you know, bigger questions there about uh, identity and, and the nation state. And, you know, we're living through a period of such flux um, at the moment. Um, but Sinn Féin is not going to get uh, its own way in relation to all of these areas. Um, success brings its own challenges and its own problems. Yes. What about a situation like this, Eamon, for example, where we're all well aware that Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland's economy is facing grave questions and strains, and they can't rely on the level of funding that they would prefer from the British yes. government. So they're going to have to make decisions in government in Northern Ireland now uh, in relation to, to how to manage budgetary challenges, and they faced this before in terms of cutbacks. Is there a danger that Sinn Féin uh, will be espousing um, certain policies or approaches in Northern Ireland that they're not doing in the Republic? Yes. Is there going to be a coherence across the island in relation to Sinn Féin? Because they make much, understandably, of the idea of, of their strength, both North and South. And they would see that as, you know, cementing uh, their claims um, in terms of representativeness and in terms of their historic mission to bring both sides of Ireland uh, together. Uh, but when it comes to policy uh, and when it comes to issues you're raising there about you know populism uh, and how to position themselves in, in, in relation to bread and butter issues uh, and cost of living issues and so on, um, there may well be uh, serious problems for them to encounter. Just a final question is to do with something in this outstanding piece, really, in the context of our times, you quote an Oma-born man called Kevin O'Sheal, mm. who was the head of the Free State's Boundary Bureau, which is part of the Boundary Commission. And you quote him as saying he had recommended during the Civil War that the best policy for all concerned would be one of peaceful do-nothingness. <laughs> yeah. It's a great, it's a great yeah. idea because I, my own view of this is that for a very, very long time down here, 
if not stated policy because the governments couldn't say it, politicians could say it. The people had a policy of peaceful do-nothingness in relation <laughs> to this very, very important question. They did, and they had other concerns. I mean, Kevin O'Shea was interesting because he was charged with the task by the Free State Government in the early 1920s of making the case uh, to the Boundary Commission uh, for uh, a complete uh, change in the border. Um, and of course, he was advocating for plebiscites and so on. But when he made those comments about a policy of peaceful do-nothingness, he was <laughs> trying to dampen down the idea that during the period of the Civil War that we'd be some kind of breakthrough would be imminent in relation to the border. And it came in the aftermath of, of the death of Michael Collins as well, who many Northern nationalists saw as their champion, you know, yes. uh, and he was gone. But after the debacle of the Boundary Commission, because its report in 1925 didn't recommend um, wholesale changes to the borders that nationalists wished, and, and the report was suppressed. Uh, it wasn't made available until 1969. Um, and there was really a disengagement uh, by the South. Yes from the border question and the question of Northern Ireland at that stage. And, you know, partition was, was further entrenched, you could argue, uh, as a result. So it did, in many respects, become a policy uh, of, of peaceful do-nothingness. Now, there are some who would perhaps <laughs> like to see that approach uh, prevail today, but that's not wise either. That's not wise either, you know. Yeah, I think benign neglect is a phrase I've heard. Because we do have to take account of, of changed circumstances. And I mentioned in that piece the Aaron's uh, project, yes. which is an academic project. It's a project of the Royal Irish Academy. But in fairness to the academics, they are doing what politicians often don't. They have spent two years looking at the exhaustive list of potential areas that would be impacted uh, by unity and how they might be managed. And some of these are obviously very technical. Some of them are, are, are of profound significance to people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, and the point that's coming out of them, of course, is that this is a hugely complex area. Yeah. It's not something that is going or should be managed by sound bites uh, or, or, or talk of, of imminence. If we've learned anything, in relation to this question and related question uh, questions over the decades, you can't achieve change unless you engage as many people as possible in an exhaustive, exhaustive process of dialogue yeah. and look at every different permutation uh, and angle. Um, and you would need to draw on that kind of work that has been produced by the Aaron's project. Um, so politicians may, of course, find it very useful at different stages to, to intervene with somewhat provocative uh, comments. Um, but they know as well as, as many of those who are involved in research uh, that there are not going to be any simple answers to these very complex questions. And we have to think of this, if we're thinking of it uh, as a project, as a very long drawn out one that has to involve as many people as possible, or else it's not going to work. Okay, Dermot, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and a bit of an education for me. And I'm sure for our listeners, Professor Dermot Farriter is Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD. And we're very grateful to Dermot, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.